Hello and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash Strategica. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and today we'll be examining the topic of the most recent issue of Strategica. Does ISIS really differ from other terrorist groups? And if so, how does its singularity complicate U.S. efforts to defeat it? And we are joined today by the author of one of the pieces in this issue, Raymond Ibrahim, widely published author, public speaker, and Middle East and Islam specialist. Raymond, thanks for being with us. Happy to be with you, Troy. Thanks. So your piece in Strategica offers a contrast with the one that Peter Mansour authored. Peter emphasizes how ISIS is different than terrorist organizations that have come before it, really in terms of ambition, resources, etc. But you begin your piece by emphasizing what ISIS has in common with other Sunni fundamentalist groups that we've seen before. What would you point to as some of the commonalities? Well, basically, all these organizations, Islamic State, Al-Qaeda, Boko Haram, Al-Shabaab, Hamas, any, any, any Sunni, Islamic, jihadi, slash terrorist organization, all share the same key ideological principles, which are derived um, uh, from a very particular reading of, of Islamic uh, history and doctrine. And so they don't really vary in that sense. No one of those groups that I mentioned would say we don't want a caliphate. In fact, they've all, they're all on record saying they want caliphate. caliphates. The only difference is how they've been going about it and the various stages and so forth. So in that article, the primary um, contrast I try to draw forth between ISIS and actually its founding organization, Al-Qaeda, is not that they had different ideas or, or that one is more brutal. Oftentimes you hear about a lot of um, analysts will tell you Al-Qaeda is actually shocked at ISIS's um, brutality right. and so forth. And I don't that I don't buy that at all because, in fact, if you delve deep into the history of al-Qaeda and what they do, they uphold Islamic Sharia law, just like the government of Saudi Arabia, our friends and allies uphold it. They believe in chopping hands, whipping people, stoning people, beheading people, crucifying people. They've done that. So it's all it's all the same thing. The difference is how they were trying, how they were going about to try to create the caliphate, which they all want. In the case of Al Qaeda, the phase that they were in was basically trying to convince the West that all the attacks that are being done against um, Western civilians and so forth, 9/11, uh, the London bombings, Madrid, and so forth, are because Western foreign policy. And in the in this context, it was Western foreign policy. One of the one of the main things that Al Qaeda and others would point to is Western foreign policy that supports Arab dictators, often who are secular. And so it was always a grievance type thing. It's because you do this. It's because you support Israel. You support dictators, et cetera, et cetera. And it was it was cast in this sense, and I believe it was done in a way to try to either demoralize Western public opinion, and it worked. I think I think a lot of people bought into the whole idea that. Uh, Islamic radicals are angry and attacking us because of our policies. They're angry at something we've done. So I believe that was the Al-Qaeda narrative, the Al-Qaeda strategy. And I think in the context of the so-called Arab Spring, much of that worked because what happened is um, U.S. support, Western support for so many longtime Western allies, Arab secular dictators, um, Hosni Mubarak, chief among them, 30 years U.S. ally, um, they just basically, uh, you know, to use the phrase, you know, threw them under the bus and so forth. And in the name of the Irish Spring, democracy, freedom. And yet you look in the, all those areas that the U.S. and Western powers have actually helped get rid of these secular dictators, whether it's Libya, Muammar Gaddafi or, or 
Egypt or now ongoing in Syria or, of course, in Iraq. <laughs> and it's those very countries that you have the Islamic State in, um, minus Egypt. Egypt, of course, has an, a, a component of ISIS, but, you know, they had the revolution. So they're kind of a different situation. Um, so I think now ISIS is the next evolution from Al Qaeda, whereby they don't feel the need to play the grievance card. Now they're in a position of strength and they're trying to mobilize Muslim support. They're trying to glor- you know, glorify what they're doing. And, um, and they are getting a lot of support. If you look around, there's uh, polls indicate millions and millions, hundreds of millions of Muslims are in one way or the other supportive of the caliphate. And uh, so I think that's what so it, the long and short of it is basically they all want the same thing, but they they've been going about it differently based on the various stages. And the last point is and even ISIS itself works according to stages. So, for example, one thing that many people will point to is ISIS isn't attacking Israel, even though Israel is, of course, depicted in the Muslim world as enemy number one in that region. And but so they were they were criticized for it, and the caliph himself sent out a, um, um, a statement basically saying, I am following the historic caliphate. And of course, the historic caliphate, um, Abu Bakr, who was the first caliph. And that's exactly why this Baghdadi guy took the name Abu Bakr, because he's emulating him. The first caliph, his first order of business was actually to bring back all the apostates, the Arabs that left Islam after Muhammad, the prophet of Islam, died. And so what he did was wage a ruthless campaign, actually much more ruthless than what ISIS is doing, which saw tens of thousands of Arabs burned alive and crucified in the name of bringing them back under the banner of Islam. And so that's actually the phase that ISIS claims it's in. It's, it's fighting the apostates, it's fighting the Bashar Assads, it's fighting the Shia, it's fighting whoever is secular, it's fighting Christians and Yazidis and so forth. And then once it, the caliphate is fully strong, then it will, as, as you probably know, there's a map that it has of what it means to conquer in the next few years, which includes portions of Europe because they're trying to reclaim the original caliphate's boundaries. You mentioned the justifications that groups like ISIS and al-Qaeda derive from their readings of Islam. Give me the ISIS or al-Qaeda understanding of the religious underpinnings of their violence. If I'm sitting across from a theologically literate member of one of these groups, what are they citing as their justification from the teachings of Islam? They're going to quote to you numerous Quranic passages, numerous hadith passages, which are basically the sayings and deeds of Islamic prophet Muhammad, all of which um, unequivocally – um, uh, indicate a sort of imperial uh, or uh, imperative to basically expand the borders of Islam and to bring the world under uh, Islamic law uh, subjugation. Now, the thing about this, and you know, one can give verses, a uh, famous one, 9-5, Surah 9-5, 929, they're called the sword verses. Muhammad, there's a famous canonical hadith that says he basically I have been sent with the sword and whoever opposes me, I will, you know, basically all these very violent um, statements. So they use that. And more than that, though, is they have history on their side, because if you look at the the history that's recorded by Muslims, um, the original primary sources in Arabic, Persian, Turkish and so forth, uh, there is absolutely no equivocation about the imperative to conquer the world. And in fact, that is how most of the of the what we call today the Muslim world, the vast majority of it was originally non-Muslim and was taken through conquest. And that's the entire North Africa from Egypt to Algeria, Spain for a time, 
Anatolia or modern-day Turkey, all of Southwest Asia, even Arabia, as I was indicating, it was done through violence. When Muhammad died, so many Arabs broke away, and then they were brought back in. And of course, Iran, you go into Pakistan, India, and these regions, and so forth. I mean, this is history, and Muslims know this. It's taught that way. And so that's what ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and all these groups will tell you. Raymond, people refer to this as an ideological war that, that may not capture the full breadth of what's going on because it's an, this is not, for instance, like the struggle with communism where you're dealing with materialist philosophy. There are religious underpinnings here. So wh what is the risk that we run that you could even conceivably defeat an organization like ISIS but you would still have people marinated in the same religious belief who would just take up the banner and start a, a new process? In other words, how do you win an ideological war? Well, that's absolutely it, and I'm, I'm in complete agreement with you. In fact, a little anecdote, um, about 12 years ago, of a high-ranking high al-Qaeda member, this is, of course, when, al when bin Laden was still alive, was killed, and there was a lot of hoopla about it. Um, and I wrote an article basically drawing an analogy with um, the mythical hero Hercules fighting the Hydra, whereby every time he chopped one head of this monster, two more popped out. Um, and that was always my argument. And ironically, every time another al-Qaeda leader has died, including Osama bin Laden, I've basically recycled the article and it's made perfect sense. So, the, <laughs> yeah, so, so the point is absolutely when you find an ideology that's really grounded in a metaphysical, um, religious, divine ideology as opposed to a more finite temporal thing such as communism, you do run into this sort of problem where it's not, it's not a matter of just killing this group, eradicating that group, referring to them as criminals, because as long as you ignore the underlying ideology, it's like I said, the Hydra, you're going to kill them. I mean, think of all the hoopla about killing Osama bin Laden. Now we got something so much worse. We have a caliphate. And if we just sit and focus on killing the caliphate, which is great, do it. But then, and you know, then we let it go. And once again, you know, Islamic radical teachings are going on in mosques, including in the West. And when the Wahhabi literature is proliferating, et cetera, et cetera, and we don't talk about that, then it comes right back. So, yeah, it's definitely harder. And I think the first step is actually acknowledging this. And I understand the uh, political incorrectness of acknowledging this, um, but I think it's possible to word it in certain ways that um, I mean, I'm not I'm not sitting here to say every single Muslim is out to conquer. I don't believe that at all. Um, but I do believe there is the ideology that these jihadis use is very well grounded in the Islamic tradition. Um, and so it's it's you can't just say, oh, what they're saying doesn't make any sense because a lot of Muslims don't do it. Well, but what they do is well grounded. And that's why a lot of Muslims, whether they do it or not, will either implicitly agree or somehow just equivocate when you talk to them about this. But like I said, there's a poll and it shows that in 11 countries, I forget it, it's in the article, but in 11 countries, something like, I don't know, 100 million or more people agree with ISIS. And that's the ones who are, you know, not, embar not embarrassed to say that. Who knows how many more just agree in their heart? Apart from acknowledging that reality rhetorically. Is there anything else that that suggests to you about how we should approach this strategically that would have the potential to at least diminish that trend, if not eradicate it? Right. So again, it's, you know, it's, are we doing it short-term vision or long-term? It seems to me almost everyone does it short-term. We're just looking at the finite group, ISIS, we're trying to do this, that. I believe there's a lot of things. Um, I'm very troubled and always have been with America's immensely close relationship with Saudi Arabia. This nation is the chief exporter of the ideology that we're discussing right now, and nothing's being said or done about this. 
And in fact, all they do is get more and more money for oil. And they take, I was reading a well-documented book just about Saudi, I think it's called Force and Fanaticism. And it says, it documented that at least $100 billion a year is spent abroad in radicalization, whether by hiring and disseminating radical literature or imams, funding mosques and so forth. So I think a, a solid first step is really re-examining America's relationship with Saudi Arabia and, uh, you know, considering if it's worth it um, based on this, based on their being the chief exporters of this ideology. So the final question that I'll put to you then, if none of that happens, <laughs> if the Western response stays roughly where it's at now, play this forward for me. What happens next? What happens is what we've been seeing. You know, if you stop for a while and you go back, and this is what I mean, we're always caught up in the sort of um, we look at the it's play by play. What happens right now? Osama bin Laden's dead, and you know we're all limited to that moment, and we think, you know, wow. But if you actually were to step back and look at the last seventy, I'm, I'm not, I'm sorry, thirty, forty years, you know, since the Iranian Revolution in '79 and so forth. Um, the Islamic, the Islamic Jihad, whatever you want to call it, is totally on the ascendancy. And, you know, we can step back and go, but look at this victory, look at that. But if you really look at the big picture, they have a caliphate for crying out loud. Uh, this is something that was uh, abolished almost a century ago. Um, and now it's back and they're crucifying people. So I think if you really step back, we are losing miserably. And if nothing is done, then it's just going to continue getting worse. I expect the next thing will be that this caliphate, which so many people, including Muslims, are just laughing about because, oh, give me a break. It's just a bunch of groups, groups of guys is really going to become solidified, is really going to become something that you can't, that isn't easily overthrown, even though I, I think at this point it could be. And it'll just keep expanding and, and getting deeper ties with other Muslim countries and possibly non other non, uh, non-Muslim countries who are also hostile to Western interests. All right. Our guest has been Raymond Ibrahim. You can read his essay and those by other members of Hoover's Military History Working Group by visiting us online at hoover.org slash strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Strategica, and I'm Victor Davis Hanson.